Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Richard Bevan is Chief Executive of the League Managers Association, the representative body of the 92 managers in the Premier League and Football League. He joined in 2008 after 11 very successful years as Chief Executive of the Professional Cricketers Association. Richard is a prominent character in the world of sport and business. He was Chief Executive of the Professional Cricketers Association up to the end of 2007. He was a Director of the Federation of International Cricketers Associations for seven years. He's a trustee of the Team England Player Partnership a director of the Professional Players Federation, the umbrella body for all players associations, which includes the PFA, the PGA, the PRA, the PCA and the Jockeys Association. Richard grew up in Shropshire and lives in Manchester with his wife Suzanne, a Queen's Council. He held an international rally driving licence for six years and competed in three RAC rallies. He windsurfed, played football and cricket to a high amateur standard and plays golf off a full handicap. Richard played football for 12 years for the Liverpool and Shropshire Ramblers and was the football coach at Concord College Shropshire from 1984 to 1987. So what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Richard Bevan, welcome to the Extrology podcast. Great to have you on as uh, my guest and I really appreciate, as always, your time and attention this afternoon and indeed your discussion. So uh, as is customary with uh, with astrology guests, I like to start with the early years. So uh, tell me, where did you grow up and what was childhood like therefore for you? Well, thanks Lee, first of all, for the invitation to join your podcast. Growing up for me was in sunny Shropshire and growing up when I look back was an amazing environment of sport strong learnings, majority of my time spent probably at school and the friendships that I made at school. And I think I went to two very good schools that taught me to always be curious and explore. And I think those are things I did at a very early age and still do today. Were you a particularly academic child or were you more at home on the sports field or what sort of of interest did you pursue? I definitely wasn't on the academic side, I don't think. But right from the very uh, early days, I think my entire life focused mainly around sport. And actually, I loved playing any sort of sport more than I did watching sport. And I met some amazing characters. I went to a school where Shrewsbury Town would come and train two or three days a week. So really watching the professionals at work and when you're young and you think you're good at a particular sport and then you see someone at several levels above you you realize wow I've got a long way to go so I better listen and watch very carefully. So who were your your heroes as a child who were the who were the posters on the wall or the people that you looked up to? Yeah I think apart from the the cards I didn't really have posters on the wall I think my heroes were the people that I played sport with but equally I met an amazing man that I remember uh, well, called Arthur Rowley. And he was a very famous Shrewsbury Town football player in the 60s. Uh, He's pretty much unknown, but he 
scored 463 goals, the most goals ever scored by a professional in the football league. But my experience with him actually was playing cricket for Perkins Engines, which is uh, a side in Shrewsbury, uh, when he was teaching me how to bowl off spin and leg spin because the ball I was bowling certainly wasn't spinning and it was finding its way out of the park. And then other great characters like uh, Graham Turner, who was the player manager of Shrewsbury Town in the late 70s and actually has managed uh, over 1,700 matches, someone I speak to two or three times a year and have amazing respect for. And then probably like a lot of other people growing up, you know, the Ian Bothams and the Muhammad Ali's, Colin McRae's in, in the motor racing. And also I remember very well wishing I could play tennis like a man called Roscoe Tanner, who uh, had an amazing left-hand serve. Uh, I thought that's that's where I wanted to be. But th- those were my uh, my memories. It's interesting you mentioned Arthur Rowley teaching you to bowl. Of course, in those days, and uh, we're a similar age, but um, in those days, you would get you know footballers who played cricket in the summer in much the same way. I mean, I think both of them played for Scunthorpe United, didn't he? As as if I remember right, you'd get sportsmen who would play dual codes in a way that it's almost inconceivable in the world in which we find ourselves today. Yeah. Like so Phil Neal was uh, captain of Worcester and also of Lincoln Football Club. I remember Chris Balderston. He went up to play uh, for Carlisle in an FA Cup match after playing cricket the same day for Leicestershire. Uh, so there are, there are many examples. And it's a shame, really, that uh, really talented youngsters in whatever sport don't get to experience all the other sports as much. But certainly growing up, uh, for me, I when I look back, and I, I've only thought about it recently because of your uh, invitation to join the podcast, it was actually anything to do with speed as well for me. Windsurfing, swimming, diving, driving, running, uh, cycling. I think that was um, that, that was a big drive for me. And, and my parents got me playing the cornet, of which I was so bad. I think that probably equally drove me out of the house to to play more sport. It was the guitar for me, and my parents would have had a similar painful experience. I said, I, well, in fact, I know they did. And the sporting sort of inspiration, was it something that had proved to have been part of the family? Did your parents play sport, and therefore that's where it stemmed from, do you think? Or do you, was it just the, as much as anything else, the influence of those around you at school that, that guided you along those lines? No, I, I think it's not particularly my parents. I think it was the school, but equally... It was just something that I think you you find what you want to enjoy and are uh, good at from a very early age. So to me, it was just evolved as part of my um, early life. Also was a lot of frustration over an early recognition that I wasn't going to be good enough to play a sport and make a living. Uh, that's what I wanted to do was to work in sport and therefore – I had to find a way of looking at other opportunities and making sure that I could still work within the passion that I had for a particular industry. People don't really understand actually how big sport is. I think it's in the top 10 of employers in Britain. It's a massive part of our of our life. And perhaps careers in sport should be better structured in advising youngsters when they want to work in and how to get into sport, which is a question I get asked every week. And, and actually, as you say that, I'm thinking that I, re- I recall my own experiences with careers advisors at school, one of whom I told I was going to be a footballer. And I remember the laugh, which 
didn't <laughs> it took some time before he stopped but i think you know the choices were typically kind of an engineer an accountant a bricklayer you know a, a nurse a doctor whatever it might have been there were there were very clearly determined career paths you could follow um that you were encouraged along but sport wasn't one of them from what i recall uh, i also had a job coaching football at a, a college in just outside of Shrewsbury called Concord College. And sport taught me at an early age that delegation and finding the right, recruiting the right people was so important. And what I mean by that is that we had a very, very talented young Norwegian player and we really need to, to find him a, a quality coach. And I rang a friend of mine who was working at Shrewsbury Town and he provided two young players who were doing their B license in their 20s, both of which I got to know well for many years. And those two players were David Moyes and Nigel Pearson. Wow. Wow. So at what point did you, was there a point at which you thought, okay, so perhaps if playing sport in whatever guys that may have, and we'll come on to some of the things you would have done in due course, but playing sport perhaps was not a career path that might have been available to you, but working in sport was certainly an aspiration. Was there a point at which you decided a career in sport was was the way forward for you? And, and, and where did you start? There wasn't particularly a point because I think I, as I was told regularly, just have patience and opportunities will will come your way. And they didn't really come my way until I had two particular injuries from amateur sport that led me to really start thinking hard. One which was I broke my leg badly, snapped three ligaments and spent six operations in Droybridge Knee Clinic in Worcestershire. And a number of Worcestershire cricketers came to see me, some friends of mine, and they encouraged me to think about the Professional Cricket Association. And when I found out that the professional cricketer, which I had a number of friends in that in that sport, had no temporary or permanent disablement insurance, and I decided to do something about it. And the PCA in those days, although it had great history going back to 1966, had no employees and no money. So I actually knew the chief executive of the England Wales Cricket Board because He'd been to the same school as I had, and I decided to knock on his door and push for funds. But in the end, I had to raise the money through industry and sponsorship, and that's how I started working in the PCA. Had you, had you, from a work perspective, career perspective, where, what had you been up to up until that point? Well, a mixture. I think in my 20s, I probably had about 20 jobs. I'm a failed chartered accountant, although I never made a chartered accountant. That was my father's uh, uh, drive. I also worked um, for a number of organizations that were on the periphery of sport, but it wasn't really till I reached 30 that I finally managed to understand how I can make a living. And, and the professional cricketers, so, so this would have been, uh, was it PCA, was it 1996? Did I read, is that correct, about that sort of time when, when you would have joined the PCA? Yes, in the probably more ninety four, but right. in the first two or three years, it wasn't thinking. Oh, I'm going to work for the Professional Cricket Association. There was no money, there was no employees. It was more. I was working uh, for a company called Fieldsman Management, working on the periphery of sport and looking at sponsorship 
And it was more of a feeling that I was going to support not a charity, but a not-for-profit organization. So in the first two years of working for the PCA, I actually earned no money at all. And it wasn't until sitting around the table with an ex-Derbyshire player, Tim O'Gorman, Mike Gatting, who was the president, a great guy called Matthew Fleming, the chairman then of the PCA, and a man called Jack Bannister that uh, many listeners hopefully will remember, uh, people who put a lot of heart and soul into the PCA, and indeed the amazing John Arlott. Right. And those individuals motivated me to, to think, okay, actually the timing is perfect. The association needs to be strong. The collective voice of the player needs to... Uh, be there. We then had the World Cup where there were many arguments between player and employers. So it was the right timing to try to take the affinity of the membership, to bring in revenue, to recruit a team of people, and to build an organization that controlled the market in which it worked. And, and was the PCA at that point, and forgive me, for, but it's interesting to understand, was the PCA representing the interests of players domestically, so British players typically, or was it representing the interests of players globally? Basically representing the professional players playing for the 18 counties, right. which included right. overseas players. And subsequently, a number of player associations have been formed around the world. And I was part of the body that formed the International Players Association called FICA, which is very active today all around the world. And you, you must have felt, my sen- not to make any assumption, but that the sense that you had of an opportunity, a gap in the market, but that also in terms of player welfare, an early theme to ensure, to your point, around having injury insurance, I think was the, the particular issue. But what was it that drove you to think, actually, this is a, it's a problem I want to solve. It's an issue I want to address. I think probably my passion for the game, the motivation of the people I kept meeting every day, and a very pivotal moment when the patron of the PCA, one Lord Colin Cowdery, asked me to come to Lords and to, it was a test match uh, um, playing India, I think it, if it was my memory's right. And I thought I was going to sit in the MCC box with him and watch cricket for the day. And as soon as I arrived, off we went. And it was a Thursday of a test match at Lords, in which every chief executive uh, or chairman of a FTSE 100 company would be there in a box watching the game. And we went from box to box, And obviously, although people didn't personally know Colin, they knew who he was. And no mobile phones, no social media. It was simply the old business cards. And um, by the time the day had finished, we had 50 business cards of some of the most important people in business who had committed to Colin that they would meet me and we would build a relationship with the PCA. And many of those companies are still supporting the PCA to this day. And many of the people in probably the 200 people that I am closest to in work and sport and play, uh, I met by networking through the cricket corporate marketplace. What do you think you learned from those early experiences with the PCA? 
I think the importance of not doing it on your own. So I think as a, a young aspiring business leader wanting to work in sport, taking time to smell the grass, as Howard Wilkinson would say, and making sure that with the affinity being so strong and generating the revenue, that you had very clear goals of what the organization was going to uh, deliver. And subsequently working in football, meeting the likes of Gerard Houllier, clear vision has been something that I think I've always focused on, as well as the simple things around just working hard um, and making sure that you tick all the right boxes. Recruitment is probably in sport and business the most important thing, isn't it? And if you get that wrong, you won't achieve what you're looking to do. So to me, I was able to work above my pay grade, if you like. I was able to meet prime ministers. I was able to meet chief executives. I was able to travel the world through cricket and meet people that I wouldn't normally have probably met if I'd gone into other industries. And that's something that I've had so much learning and appreciation of more than anything else. You, you had, um, am I right in thinking that within five years you built the PCA from an organisation with no employees to one with, with 20 staff and a turnover of 5 million is, is what I'd read. How did you go about affecting the kind of growth that, that the organisation enjoyed? Working closely with the players, creating a power group in order to influence the game and not only take a share of the revenues that they earned to improve the lot of the professional player, but also creating an organisation that absolutely controls the market in which it operates. The player is the product as well as the employee in, in sport. And there were many players around that were really influential in working with the PCA to make it grow. And as soon as we developed central contracts, which actually came with the impetus from Nasser Hussain, not from the England Wales Cricket Board, he had a lot of intellectual energy. Um, he knew the need and the importance of central contracts for England players. He knew the importance of accessing uh, accessing physiotherapists, psychologists, national coaches, training, managing workloads, and a far more focused itinerary for practicing and playing. So we had a much stronger voice off the pitch and indeed on the pitch because between 1987 and 1999, we only won 25 test matches. Mm. And between 2000 and 2012, we won 75 test matches with that amazing summer of 2005. I remember it well, vividly. And to your point, I was going to ask the question around central contracts because, you know, my sense of, of growing up watching cricket in the 80s and 90s, that the game went through, I mean, some of the initiatives and the vision that perhaps Nasser Hussein imparted may be unfamiliar to many in terms of the game that we see today. All of the, the structures that sit around the game would appear to be a natural part of it. But you know, the, the, the influence of nutrition and psychology and all the other ancillary parts that go to make a great sportsman and sports team were not necessarily, that would have been revolutionary, I guess is my point. Was there a lot of resistance in the game to the sorts of changes that you were looking to make? Or was there that recognition that, hey, you know, actually performance 
is such that we really do need to make some changes if we're ever to wrestle the Ashes back off the Australians. I think, was it 86? I just about remember 86, possibly an Ashes win. 86, 87, something like yeah. that. And then a very barren spell until about 2005. So how much of a shift did you have to make? Yes, there was a big shift, Pro- probably more in terms of the collective voice of the players helping to guide the game. And we formed something which I still chair today called the Team England Player Partnership. When you play cricket for England, you become a partner in a business. And that looks after the contracts, the health and well-being, as well as a share of the commercial and broadcast revenue that comes in that makes up central contracts and the remuneration for, for players. But absolutely, I remember Lord Cowdery when he said, uh, and I use the word patience quite a lot because I probably didn't have a great deal in those days, but he said, when you're managing the relationships with the so many different stakeholders, you'll come across a number of walls, brick walls, and you need to think carefully about how to get over those walls. Sometimes you'll simply walk around, climb over, but when you do need to go through the wall, make sure you have everybody with you on the right bus, sitting in the right place, and then you'll succeed. So I think it was more about, yes, there was opposition, but it was more ignorance really to the future landscape and the role of players. And, And indeed, the same in football today, you have coaches and managers. I call this group of people the professional practitioners and they have hundreds of thousands of matches of experience. And if you ask them a question about where the game is going or what it needs, they often will have the answer. And they're very, very good instinctive decision makers. And that's something that often business lacks. Indeed, COVID has really helped from that perspective, I believe, because the chief executive of New York Times actually wrote about it. He wrote an article about leadership in uncertainty. It's all about making the right decision using instinct. And it's a really interesting one. I've talked to a number of sport and business leaders because in the heat of a moment, a great leader has to think clearly enough to make those tactical changes. And sports people on the pitch and in the technical areas are doing that all the time. Whereas our business leaders tend to wait till they have all the information the finance, the legals, the market. They want as much information as out there, and then they'll make their business decision. And COVID has forced our businesses, forced our communities, and forced our sports to make instinctive decisions with only half the information. So to me, the link between sport, sport coaching, and business leaders is closer than ever before. And that's one of the reasons why the LMA's business school has 40 companies, major companies supporting it, as well as coaches and uh, managers from seven or eight different sports. And that's something that um, is really important to uh, how I view the strategy of where our organizations, be it cricket or football, uh, should be going forward. Do you think that pre-COVID, the direction of travel 
was going too far possibly the other way. I'm thinking that, for example, if you look at the, the, the moneyball type principle and the success of the Oakland A's in, in baseball in America and the impact of data to drive decision-making in baseball, do you think that, the, that there was a risk that perhaps the drive for information we live in a you know data I, I think i'm right in saying that now data is more valuable than oil on a global basis you know we've 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 gone to it we've got so much of it that actually was driving some of that instinct away or out or that perhaps people were less trusting of it and that consequence of covid has meant people have had to make quicker intuitive decisions and therefore it's it's slightly realigned i think Probably it's the most important question you've asked and something we could debate for a long time, something we certainly look at in the league managers' associations now, because speaking with the armed services, with businesses, with uh, large charities, uh, as well as the sport organizations, uh, data is key. And whether it's on the pitch or off the pitch, to such an extent that data is only going to be used to its maximum or its most efficient if you interpret the data and you use it correctly in your organization. And in sport and certainly in football, it's something we're looking at at the moment in terms of how do all the stakeholders help identify talent who want to become coaches and managers and leaders and making sure that we have the right data in which to support. And particularly with football managers with data, Many of the clubs are probably employing interpreters, should we call them, in terms of helping. But at the end of the day, you're never going to remove the main purpose of the job of a coach or a manager in using his eyes and ears and making sure that the right people are in his team. And you come back to what we talked earlier about, the importance of getting your recruitment right. And with Alex Ferguson and, and, and other very senior managers, We've had long conversations about instinctive recruitment, including Eddie Jones, actually, in the rugby world as well, but all sports. Uh, how do you ensure that you give yourself the best chance by recruiting the best team for your organisation? I think that's an interesting one around instinct. And I don't know the specifics, but I think I'm right in saying that there is indeed some research around gut feel and that actually a sense that it's something that has been developed over you know, millions of years as a consequence of our our place on this planet, almost instinctively going back to, you know, prehistoric days and that sense of maybe the saber-toothed tiger was peering at you from behind a rock. You get an instinct that you might be being looked at. There's a reason we get these feelings, if you like, and that there's, there's increasingly some research into these. I think gut feel has a huge part to play, but I guess data clearly helps to inform decisions and, and getting a balance between the two seems like a, a sensible place to be. And better understanding of performance using technology and data is part of that, for sure. Let's come on to the, the LMA and what really shines through from your comments about the PCA was your passion for cricket and your passion for players, I think that's, and playing the game and the, and the role that players play in, 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 in the game. But what was it about the LMA that, that attracted you? First of all, uh, football was always a big part of my life growing up, watching and playing amateur sport, amateur football. But when Howard Wilkinson and Alex Ferguson tell you that you're now working for the LMA, that's exactly what you're going to do. Uh, and that was pretty much it, to be honest. Uh, I met Howard Wilkinson at Lord's at a cricket match. And then 
when I met, went to two or three meetings and you look at the managers of the time and the Sir Bobby Robsons and the Gerald Houliers and the Arsene Wengers, these were amazing team of leaders and managers that were growing a league and our game in this country to being the most successful sporting structure in the world, going to 260 million households. And probably Sir Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger, what they did for the Premier League is just amazing. So the opportunity to go and work and to learn and to develop my own uh, aspirations and goals and ideals was a really, really tempting thing of that, that that took no thinking really to make the decision to go and work for the LMA. And equally, the organisation, although its history goes back to 1919, it again only employed three people and didn't actually have significant revenues. So I had the opportunity within an environment of amazing affinity of great leaders in a sport to build again. So I think that, from my perspective, rather than going into an organization that was already built and running smoothly, I had the opportunity to go and build what we'd built in the PCA on a much bigger scale in a much bigger sport. This may seem a daft question, but nonetheless, I'm intrigued by the response. What have you enjoyed about the experience? Working for the LMA uh, and in football, football's made up of some amazing people. It's like a total reflection of society. So you're never really quite sure what's coming around the corner. Perhaps in cricket, life became a little bit more predictable, which can be good as well. But the LMA represents the four leagues, managing the four leagues, the WSL, the Women's Championship. And when you look back at history uh, of the the managers, uh, it was easy to build the pillars in which the business is now firmly on, legal, contracts, healthcare, education, commerce, the technical collective voice influencing the game, and indeed the amazing charity work that uh, the organization delivers. And I think probably the best example of that is prostate cancer, you know, the amount of men badges that football managers wear during their interviews has helped move a charity into a global organization, really supporting its research and, and fundraising. But the game's evolved significantly, be that data or technology and a greater focus on coach education. So again, for me, the timing was perfect as well. So in the same way I needed the LMA, it also needed someone from the outside to come in and help it evolve. Is it fair to say that you think you've seen a, a an increased professionalism, which isn't to imply that that was lacking before, but that there's been an evolution in terms of the level of professionalism within sport generally, but that also particularly within football? I think collaboration is has been really important. If you look at um, some of our governance, be it in cricket with the ICC, who've been letting down the international game for some 20 years, and certainly the same with FIFA, is that often, certainly in FIFA's case, the F stands for finance and not football on too many occasions. I do believe that 
the why the reason why changes are happening is that the different stakeholders in the sport are getting their act into gear to have that collective voice and between us working far more as a PLC of sport rather than a PLC without a head office, if that makes sense. And actually, in sport generally, um, we are also debating internally, why don't we have a sports minister that sits on the main cabinet? And in those countries where that happens, it's a much better position. And if you think of COVID and the impact of sport has had supporting our communities through COVID, uh, you couldn't put a better argument together to see a sports minister sitting on the cabinet rather than through the DCMS. No, I think you make a really valid point. But then I, you're preaching to the converted. I've, you know, sport has been an integral part for my, my whole life has been about sport and love sport. So, you know, and I could see the part that it plays and how it impacts communities at, at all levels. And I think that there's, you know, I think that's an important part to make that it, you know, is the all levels piece because it isn't just about, I mean, even within your own role, Richard, you know, that, we see that you know clearly the Premier League is a is a huge global offering, but that to your point you're supporting managers right the way through the leagues and the women's game, which of course is also growing at a rapid rate from what I see as a, as a spectator, as a consumer of the sport. But um, what have what have been the changes that you feel have have, have been most impactful in the sport through your tenure since 2008? What's what what have been those changes that really stood out for you, really impacted the game? To to me because of the part of the industry I work in, I think it has been the focus on coach education, the role of the coach, the role of the manager, the role of the technical director uh, throughout the leagues, and probably the opening of St. George's Park, the National Football Centre, which is where the LMA, which is where we're based. And I think if we were to look and see where the LMA may be in, say, five years and 10 years' time, something that sport doesn't do very well uh, looking into the future. I think it will definitely be, yes, very good legal team, health team, yes, a collective voice, but actually the world's best business school for coach development in the LMA Institute of Leadership and High Performance. So that is the main area. But equally, the game's also evolved on the pitch, off the pitch, technology, from the early days of Hawkeye right through to when VAR was launched uh, with the 2018 World Cup. So I think in today's modern landscape, there's a a greater knowledge and greater understanding of of the game uh, in so many different facets. And do you think that to your point around sport, perhaps not being quite so adept at at looking to the future, do you think that that is changing in many ways? If I look at Perhaps this is an ill-educated fan's perspective, but nonetheless, that the sense that the structures that increasingly we see clubs employ with directors of football and then trying to build, clearly in lots of cases it doesn't always work, but clubs are starting to build towards the longer term to try and build longer term structures and recognise the value in that sort of production line of, of talent, whether that be coaches, players. Do you think that that's, that's starting to shift or does it still come back to results on a Saturday? It wasn't not always quite Saturday afternoons anymore, but results on a Saturday afternoon are the real currency of decision-making. Yes, in any sport, it's all about winning and indeed losing, isn't it? Um, but I do believe in the last couple of years, because of 
lots of changes in our society, COVID, diversity, so many important pivotal moments that I think we are in a better position because all of the stakeholders uh, are collaborating and understanding the needs of the game. We're in a much better position to drive change and we are better at communicating within the game, things like Project Restart and the new protocols. I think COVID has really helped us make two or three steps up in the way that we we operate for the benefit of the most important stakeholders, the fans. And I think the understanding of the, of the fans' role in the game has been something that the clubs and the administrators have had to really uh, delve into and understand much deeper as things like the Super League showed us. And do you think COVID therefore has refocused that attention? There was always that, and, and I'm talking now as someone who will watch very happily, watch my local non-league side, will watch lower league football, League One, League Two football very often, but also, you know, take in the premiership game. So as someone who's watched football at all levels, I think you see that, that, that connection with the fan base is still very apparent in my experience with amongst perhaps smaller clubs where there is less, you know, the, Attendances of three, two, three, four, five thousand, for example, than there might be with seventy thousand. That there was that sense that the clubs might have drifted away a little from the fans because the accusation being that the revenue driver were you know, TV was what was driving revenues, but that maybe with COVID, without the fans, perhaps clubs started to think, oh, they're such an integral part of the fabric. We do need to play closer attention to this. Do you think COVID shifted that dynamic back in the right direction in that respect? I think you make a really good point. I think clubs at all levels of the pyramid have all stepped up at the very heart of their communities and they've done some uh, amazing work. And I think it demonstrated that the clubs were putting health and well-being at the heart of all of the decision-making. And from that came an understanding and the need to care, the understanding of the value of strong relationships and the primary importance of how teamwork in your community is going to bind you together closer as a club. And indeed, for the people I represent in the managers, the relationship actually between the manager and many of the owners, distant owners, as well as the executive of the clubs, improved because often a manager will feel like he's a subcontractor as opposed to an employee because of the volatility and the tenure in the game that we all know about. But actually, they became the voice of the club in so many so many parts of the country. And I think those strong relationships with the fans, and the same actually when you look at a club that's in administration and the great job that someone like Wayne Rooney is doing there. But I think we've had 40-odd clubs in administration in the last 20, 30 years. And when you study how the managers and how the clubs performed, there was a, a bonding and a coming much closer together with its community and its fan base. And I think that's what COVID has also enabled clubs to do, is to harness the power of football to make their community a better place, their club a better place, and to stand up for things that are really important more as a unit. What, um, what changes do you think the game... Maybe, maybe not changes, but perhaps more in terms of how the game evolves. What does that evolution need to look like? I guess, therefore, come back to changes. What changes the game needs to make to continue to, A, enjoy the success that it enjoys today at the very top level, but that also 
at the you know right the way through the pyramid that actually or you know, those those clubs further down the pyramid can succeed in the in similar ways in relative ways. Yeah, that's such a a big question, and we probably haven't got long enough. <laughs> but I think you can break it down into two things. One is the changes and where the game should be on the pitch, and whether that's tactics and the passing and the possession game and how IFAB, the body that controls the rules of the game, and how FIFA and UEFA operate with the different leagues. And then I think the future planning of the game, to me, is all about the viability and stability of our clubs, preserving and investing in academy structures, um, as well as the importance of the fans. From a broadcasting point of view, the matches can now be watched in so many different ways, can't they? Um, on the laptops, the televisions, the smartphones, the influence of social media to the running of our clubs, decision-making of our boards. But I think football has a great heart. It's got some of the most inspirational people on the planet uh, working in it. And I'm sure that people will always be proactive and innovative, and it is the greatest game that we have. Talk to us a bit about your work with Sport United against dementia and shining a light on suicide. I think that, that sport has such a is so impactful for so many, and actually does so many wonderful things from a charitable perspective that that don't necessarily make headlines, don't get perhaps talked about or highlighted enough. Certainly, but it does by those that are involved with it and doing wonderful work. But from a you know, it doesn't it doesn't get the same degree of attention that arguably it should. But tell us about some of the work that you've been involved with from a charitable perspective. Well, I think not just the LMA, but every stakeholder in the game spends a lot of time supporting uh, not only people within the game, but outside. And I think there are three areas that we have an impact, as well as on a significant learning curve ourselves. One is general education over the areas that charities work in, uh, the awareness and fundraising. If you take dementia, dementia early diagnosis is something that's going to be talked about a lot in the next 24 months. And I think we in the sport industry can really help that. This, uh, I've learned a lot myself about uh, dementia in the last 12 months, the explosion of communication that's come in. And the fact that dementia has, I think, seven parts to diseases, be it Alzheimer's or other parts. And I think it's something that we need far greater investment into the research into football's link with dementia and the concussion protocols that resulted in heading drills in training. But from my point of view in the LMA, it's listening and learning and then asking the managers to support the charities to convey the right messages, to generate that awareness, to point people in the right direction. In dementia, we've got 1.9 million people suffering with dementia. Sorry, 900,000, but we've got 1.9 million carers. So helping those carers is also really important to our members and our communities. And shining a light on suicide campaign is something we did with the mayor of Manchester with 48 managers promoting a campaign for learning and training and understanding more about people around us in our communities. Most people have heard a lot in the last 24 months about mental well-being, such an important part 
if you want to be fit in whatever you do, you need physically and mentally to be as strong as you can. And I think we hardly see people talking about suicide. And in cricket and football, there have been tragic situations. So we, in a couple of months' time, are looking at a national campaign to again promote shining a light on suicide, not only across the country, but in other parts of the world as well. So it's a really important part. As we mentioned earlier, the prostate cancer uh, Man of Men badges is a really good example of how we can make a real difference out there. Probably my biggest experience of what a sport can do to help uh, its community goes back to December the 26th in 2004. And we had a tsunami with a 9.1 magnitude earthquake, um, as we all know, off the coast of Indonesia. We lost 230,000 people with millions homeless. And at the time, Sri Lanka were playing cricket in New Zealand. And the world cricket players, within 48 hours, led by the likes of Brian Lara, Steve Waugh, Tim May, who headed up the International Union, were on the phone to each other saying, as the Sri Lankan players are going home, let's take a world 11 to New Zealand. So the New Zealand Cricket Board didn't lose their broadcasting and we could also raise money for the families that have been hit by the disaster. Many millions of dollars were raised. And that was probably my first experience of how sport can wipe through the politics, the red tape, and within a matter of hours and days, plan something that could affect uh, many millions of people and do some amazing work. And I think all sports really should get a lot of credit for the work they do supporting there's so many charities and uh, that's something i think uh, the industry should be really proud of no i agree i agree is there somewhere that we could point people with some of the initiatives that you're currently involved in so are there there, uh, websites we could point people to we can certainly leave them in the show notes but is there any particular reference points you'd like to highlight or any any direction in which do you could point people here now sure um On the um, Sport United Against Dementia, that's basically a board campaign that's been put together by Alzheimer's Charity Society, and that's made up of individuals from many different sports. And you can find that information out on the uh, different websites and from our point of view on our website as well, leaguemanagers.com. So just Google it and you'll find lots of – and if anybody would like to link up with the LMA – We also promote managers and coaches who are out of work, uh, not just in this country, actually, but across Europe, to work on projects to support uh, our communities. And we have a – it's not many industries where your elite performers are out of work for 25% or 30% of their working life. And that's something that we're working hard and the – leaders and the managers in the LMA have a great appetite to not only support, but also learn from those environments. It's a really big part of where I think we'll be in the next three to five five years. That's really interesting because I've always maintained the parallels between business and sport are plentiful, but actually in terms of some of these, you know, the talents that these individuals have, 
aren't, I would imagine, whilst clearly sports specific, but also ultimately transferable into any one of a number of differing spaces and sectors, and not least around leadership, management, vision, performance, all of those sorts of, you know, absolutely essential skills, all of these people are employing day in, day out. If you take somebody such as Gus Hiddink, he gave a lecture in Berlin to one of our major PLC partners, and he delivered the lecture in five languages. Yeah, phenomenal. And then if you looked at the, sadly, we lost an amazing man in Walter Smith. And Walter would talk a lot about coaching being the golden thread of the game. And I think coaching or mentoring, another word that uh, we hear more in, in business, is so important. In the LMA, we have 22 mentors, and we also train mentors in a year-long program. For myself, um, I have three mentors or three coaches I work with. And I think if we are always open to learning, always open to new ideas, John Coleman, the manager of Accrington Stanley, who used to be a school teacher many years ago, he enrolled on the LMA diploma in football management two years ago. And it's normally for young and up and coming managers. And I asked him, what would he most like to get from the course during the year? And he said, I'm here mainly, as well as to learn, but to meet the next coaches, to listen to new ideas. And I think perhaps sport does that a little bit more readily than other industries. I think you're true. You mentioned throughout this conversation, you've mentioned some towering figures of, of particular sport and cricket, but from in terms of influences from your own perspective, who has been the greatest influence on your career and, and why? I knew you were going to ask me that question and I don't know the answer. I think there's probably too many people Probably my wife, who's a circuit judge, who brings me back down to earth and realize that sometimes some of the things that I'm working or dealing on aren't quite as serious or important as I think they might be. But I think with the internet, with the news channels, with the media, we have so many opportunities to see amazing things in our communities with people and what they're doing all around the world that every day, I'm amazed by people from all walks of life that we can all take learnings from. So I think opening your eyes, anticipating and looking forward to what's coming around the corner is really important. I often get asked, you know, a lot of people think they could become football managers. In fact, probably we all think we could do the job of being a football manager. But when I introduce people to the role of a manager and the many facets of the job, be that leadership, management, technical, tactics, coaching, analytics, psychology, physiology, biomechanics, medical, diet, nutrition, I could keep going, that the biggest learning from teams and managers and my years in, in work has been not to do it on your own. And I think that's something that I look not to individuals, but to teams of individuals of how they solve problems, achieve objectives, and deliver whether it's a business goal or a sporting goal. 
I think that that's fascinating that, you know, you, you list any one of a number of different facets of the football management responsibility, but that you then factor into that the fact that you are managing elite performers as well with very high expectations. And I think oftentimes there's a perception maybe that that elite performer is a Premier League player as an example. But arguably based on statistics of those that make it to play professional sport, if you're paying for a League Two side, statistically you're an elite performer. Now you might not be at the top of the game, you know, at the absolute pinnacle, but you're still amongst an elite of very talented athletes. You factor that into what that entails from a management perspective. And for anyone who's managed a team, they'd understand the, you know, the dynamics at play. It's, very, it's a very complex task. So to your point, perhaps many of us think because we've watched Match of the Day or we've stood with a bovril and a pie on the terraces, we've all got an opinion. You can be sure of that, but actually making a great manager. I, I, I'm, not, I'm sure it's a very, in fact, I've no doubt it's very complex. Before we go on to last couple of questions, I, there's one bit I couldn't leave, which was, you know, you mentioned speed right at the start of the conversation. I think you even referenced Colin McRae, uh, who, of course, was hugely successful in World Rally Championships over the years. And I, as I understand it, you've, you've also done a, a few rallies yourself. Is that right? If, if, would I, might, might I have found you behind the wheel of a rally car at some point? Yes, you did. Uh, yes, you would, rather. I competed in, I think, five international rallies, some without much success. But actually, the reason why we did that was literally in the pub one day, someone said, why don't we uh, enter the REC rally? It, it's, a good, uh, it's a good example, actually, of how important terrestrial television, because if you're our age, you'll remember the REC rally. You know, the great history, the stage and the road rally, the night and day. And we saw uh, this amazing sport, which you hardly see now. You've got to really look hard to find the sport. I'm not even sure if the REC rally, where it is at the moment, we have the Welsh rally. But because it was on terrestrial television and because it was actually the most watched sporting event live in England, Wales and Scotland, and millions of people were watching the sport live during the four days and nights of the rallying. And then probably from a, an early age, I remember looking at the uh, launch of the Audi Quattro, the most coolest, sexiest car on the planet. And uh, all these amazing, good-looking Finland, Ari Vatanen and uh, Hanno Mikula, and all the many Finns that were rallying cars. I was thinking one day I'm going to own I'm going to own a, a Quattro. And and um, thinking about it, I never have owned an Audi Quattro, so I must do that sometime. So what we decided to do was let's enter the RAC rally. And so we got some sponsorship and then we realized, well, to do that, you've got to have an international rally driver's license. So a friend of myself competed in 10 nationals. We got our, uh, our rally driver's license. And the reason we did three or four of the REC rallies is because we wanted to finish one. So actually the, the rally, apart from the uh, professional drives and the cars that were leading the way, the rest of us were really fighting our own demons. We were trying to keep the car on the road, keeping the, the team, the small team that we had to try and get to the end. And I think it's a little bit like, it might sound a bit uh, odd, but it's a little bit like golf as well, that when I was in a car driving a 20-mile stage, there's nothing else I thought about. Even though you're driving through a forest at 100 miles an hour or you're walking on a golf course at four miles an hour, 
there's something very odd that stops you thinking about anything else than what you're you're doing. And I really enjoyed that. I got totally immersed in it. And my goal was against myself and, and against the course, rather than trying to compete with the amazing Colin McRae's and the people that we all idolized as, as young uh, men wanting to drive cars fast. So, so in terms of unwinding, I'd imagine the uh, LMA responsibility and all the other pursuits that you're um, engaged in keep you very active from a work perspective, but away from work, in terms of unwinding, what is it that you would do to, to relax? W- would we find you behind the wheel of a, of a rally car again, or have you got other pursuits you enjoy these days? Um, I don't think I've got enough uh, money to get back in a rally car again. But in, in terms of pursuits, I think any form of sport I'm watching, and sport is such a big part of my life, it doesn't feel like really work. And one of the reasons why, compared to five years ago and 10 years ago, and getting anxious and stressful about work, uh, the reason why I'm in a comfortable and challenging position is because the team I work with is amazing. So we have 22 members of the team. We have 70 professionals, be they lawyers, doctors, accountants. And in many ways, I'm a facilitator. So if you're a member of the LMA and you have a problem, it's my job to find you the very best person to help solve your problem and to pay the bill. And my problem of trying to find things to do Uh, when I'm not working is not too hard because there's not a great deal of time, but it would be playing golf. It would be traveling. It would be reading the business pages and also meeting, continuing to meet people. I think uh, one of the amazing benefits for us even here now is technology of Zoom. Before COVID, the total number of Zoom calls I had been on was zero. Now we're linking up with coaches all around the world. We're linking up with the ice hockey coaches. We're linking up with people in Asia, India. There are 50,000 new football coaches in India. Uh, We've got people in America. It's so easy now for people to give an hour of their time. And I think that's probably one of the, uh, the amazing things. But getting out and about, I do far too many miles in, in a working week in the car but equally meeting people is still one of the most enjoyable things you can do so what does success mean to you richard i think success to me is continuing to enjoy the environment of working in a sport a business an environment of working with really talented people leaders managers coaches that inspire myself and uh, the public throughout the world in the game of football. So at the moment, I'm hoping there's not too many changes around the corner, Um, but that environment is something that I think is probably a success. Alex Ferguson uh, has been quoted on a number of occasions about when you're developing your business to control and to define the marketplace in which you work and live. And I think if I look back over the years, that's been the most successful part, both at work and at home, creating the market and the place in which I want to live, exist and and work. 
And in terms of, therefore, what drives you, how would you answer that? I think my father probably instilled in me the importance of hard work. And if you work hard, you probably don't have to think too much about that answer. So in terms of what drives me is being physically and mentally fit. Up until a few years ago, I never thought too much about the importance of mental agility and resilience. We have two in-house sports psychiatrists at the LMA. We're building podcasts for many of our business partners on the importance of anxiety and uh, resilience. There are so many lessons from the industry I'm currently in in football that being a football manager sometimes feels like a permanent state of psychological crisis. Um, So there are so many great lessons. So I hope that's a roundabout way of answering your question. And therefore, if you were perhaps to reflect back to 21-year-old Richard Bevan, what advice might you give yourself? Well, that's a dangerous one. (laughs) But if I was to see a 21-year-old Richard Bevan looking at me, I would tell him to be more patient. I would tell him the point we made earlier, take time to smell the grass, not to panic when things go wrong, take a step back and to always bring your boldest self to whatever the challenge might be. And so what does the future look like for you? More of the same, much more of the same, I hope. It sounds as though, I mean, it sounds fascinating, the work that you're doing with the LMA and the developments in which you're front and centre. And the you can see that the, it's not even the trickling out, but the, the, the tentacles spreading out amongst all the different offerings and the development of, of people across the organisation that you're affording. Um, it's, it's fascinating to see and fascinating to hear and a great insight into, you know, we see a snapshot into the sporting world on, you know, two hours on a Sunday afternoon on a screen, but actually it's great to hear from you. So, um, so Richard, I really appreciate your time and insight this afternoon. It's been fascinating. I, I could have spoken for hours and hours and hours to you, but I really appreciate you taking the time out. Thank you for your candor and, uh, and your insight. Uh, it's, a, it's a really fascinating story and uh, we really appreciate you having on as a guest. Thanks, Leo. And I really enjoyed uh, thinking and talking to you as well. It, it, it'll uh, create for a good weekend of thinking of things that I, I should be looking at in the next uh, few weeks in terms of the way we, we operate and prepare and live and work. So thanks very much. My pleasure. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.